Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. Member Earthwalker7 joins us again to give the listeners a deep dive into fundraising best practices for private equity funds, LP psychology, as well as the various roles and career paths available to investor relations professionals. Enjoy. Earthwalker7, thank you so much for joining the Wall Street Races podcast again. My pleasure. Great. And uh, it'd be great if you could just give the uh, listeners some context again about your background. Sure. So I've spent more than 10 years in private equity. And in addition to doing deals, I was asked to help with fundraising. And so now I've done fundraising across four different funds. Also, I've spent time uh, doing fundraising for uh, one of the hedge fund products. And then also spent about a year and a half doing cap intro at one of the bulge bracket banks. So a little bit of experience across more or less all food types. So I can speak to in-house IR, uh, cap intro, placement, and hedge fund capital raising. Great. And um, I guess, you know, this is a little bit of a different career path than what the traditional member on Wall Street Oasis um, is interested in. But I think it is it, it is an interesting um, topic we could kind of dive into. I'd love just to hear a little bit more about specifically the cap intro role at the Bulge Bracket Bank. But also, um, I think you had some uh, top suggestions in terms of how to go about capital raising for private equity funds successfully and how to manage different LPs. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should spend most of the time on sort of the best practices for capital raising, but just uh, real quick um, on the career side, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can be a decent career for someone who really likes selling and particularly likes selling alternatives. It's a different kind of a deliverable compared to being on the deal side. I think if you're on the deal side, you get to analyze a lot of different companies and a lot of different deals. And you tend to really be, I hate to say it, but you're sort of deal junkie. Like you want to see the deals uh, close and you want to hunt down opportunities. Cap intro is very different. And sorry, fundraising is very different. It's really more about developing long-term relationships with the LPs and getting a really good sense for LP psychology and then taking more of a sales role, doing it just inside of alternative funds. Uh, It also really matters fund to fund how you get treated. So in some cases, you can be a a full partner and get carried interest. Uh, Dave Rubenstein, for instance, spends basically all of his time doing capital raising and flying around the world Mm. and deepening the Carlisle relationships with big LPs. Um, On the other hand, for a lot of people coming up in the ranks, they may not be treated uh, quite as uh, as generously. Generously, generously, yeah. So yeah, it, it really is more varied. And so the um, ju- see, the junior roles for that. Can you talk a little bit about like where someone would actually start there? Would it be something they get right out of school? Would they is the typical path for this, or maybe there is no typical path? But is it right out of undergrad? Is it something where they'd be learning under, you know, they'd join a large fund and maybe be learning under one of the, the, the lead uh, people there? You see that sometimes, uh, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's really more of a lateral movement. So like what happened to me? So you do see sometimes people get hired in to help carry the water for capital raising inside of a fund. Mm-hmm. But really that only happens at the very large funds. And then those junior people are really more client services. And that's because a lot of the funds don't have enough um, seats for even one full-time IR person, much less a full-time person to head it up, plus a junior person to support. And so that's a little bit more rare, unless you're talking about really the larger platforms. And cap intro, it's different. So cap intro, really, it's the same titles and hiring 
hierarchy that you get inside of uh, investment banking. Um, cap intro, just for those who don't know, is capital raising for hedge fund clients of the investment bank. It sits inside of uh, prime brokerage. And that's uh, a role which is actually very different from inside of PE because you really are the tip of the spear. So if you're a hedge fund client of the investment bank, you really only care about a handful of things. You care about stock borrow, you care about being able to get leverage, and you care about cap intro. So cap intro is one of the prime selling points for uh, a prime brokerage inside of an investment bank for getting hedge fund clients on board and also to keep them continuously happy. The hedge funds are always raising, so the cap intro guy is on everyone's speed dial and all the hedge funds want their help. That's really interesting. And and so the the cap intro team at a bank tends to be much larger, I assume. They actually probably do bring in undergrads and that's that's kind of where somebody that would maybe later transition into a fund as the internal IR person may, might start. Yeah, that's right. So the teams mm-hmm. do tend to be larger uh, and it consists of uh, a very different kind of role from inside of uh, private equity or even hedge fund. Because when you're in cap intro, you really are just doing that. You're making introductions. You're coming up to a certain extent with the capital raising strategy for one of your hedge fund clients. You're putting on big events to bring the hedge funds and uh, the LPs together. And right. You are trying to facilitate introductions. You're doing that continuously throughout the year. So, for instance, with uh, the bulge bracket that I was a part of, we'd have a couple of big events during the year where we bring all of our funds or, or a lot of our best paying funds and uh, as many LPs as we could get and bring them into an event and, and try to pair them up in, um, you know, in, in uh, little round tables where you have multiple LPs listening to a one GP pitch. Um, but the capital raising process is year round. Now the difference between that and being inside of a fund is you're not a subject matter expert on any of the funds. You're basically an inch deep, and a mile wide. Uh, you know, I had personally more than 70 GP clients uh, mm-hmm. from the bank. And so the job was really about trying to keep as many of those 70 happy and trying to keep them uh, continuously being fed with new leads from the LP side. Meanwhile, if you're going inside of a fund, you're going to know that one fund's product, it may only have one product mm-hmm. or may have, you know, a handful of products if they're a large enough shop, you know, maybe a, uh, a venture growth and a buyouts uh, uh, product and maybe a hedge fund product. And you can only know so uh, so much if you're on the cap intro side, but you get to meet absolutely everybody in the industry on both the GP side and the LP side. Whereas if you're inside of the fund, you know only your own product and you're really more about um, pushing out to the LPs. And it's also different from, from compensation and pressure and responsibility. Mm-hmm. So on the cap intro side, you're, you have a lot of resources because, uh, and you have uh, yeah, a lot of the, the LPs really want to talk to you because even if one product isn't suitable for them, you have you know, dozens more that you can show them. So the LPs tend to be pretty receptive. And a lot of the big hedge funds also take you quite seriously. On the other hand, you never get to win. You never feel that you're crossing the finish line. Right. You're always just making an introduction and stepping away and letting the fund manager actually try to close. And you're on to the next fund and you're on to the next fund and you're cycling through. So I, I actually found it to be quite a grind and working you know, pretty much between 12 to 16 hour days. And it was really more 16 hour days, uh, five days a week, plus at least half a day uh, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes even more on a weekend. And it's a lot of just churning the same kind of thing, connecting, connecting, connecting right. uh, the different data points. Whereas I think inside of a private equity fund, um, you really get to go deep. So you get to know all of the portfolio companies. You get to understand the dynamics of the deals. Why did a certain deal get done and how did it get done? You actually delve into the financials and mathematics. People start asking you uh, about how leverage was applied or you know, what the company's current uh, performances inside of the portfolio and so it, it's much more detailed um but you had you had mentioned you had mentioned inside the pe fund specifically that there's often either one seat or no seats or half a seat for this type of role so is that is that correct that's right so so it depends on the size of the fund right the AUM, and how seriously they take capital raising so if you're at a vc fund there is absolutely no ir seat 
it's uh, generally the partners that are doing that and they're spending uh, some of their time on it. Um, in other funds, they might be a COO type person that takes on the responsibilities of managing, but also takes on the responsibilities of compliance and uh, capital rates. And then in certain groups, when they've gotten to be quite large, like Carlisle, a TPG, a KKR, they actually have fully built out uh, capital raising functions. They've right. got multiple products. They've got very large products, which means they have to talk to a lot of LPs and a lot of very big, slow-moving LPs. And there's always one product or more that's available. So they actually have very sophisticated and well-built out um, platforms. Another group we haven't talked about is the placement agent group, which mm -hmm. is basically also uh, evolved out of the investment banks and, and has also independent standalone shops, which uh, help private equity funds raise capital. So just like Cap Intro, which sits inside of prime brokerage for hedge funds, you have uh, groups that are out there raising money for private equity funds. And so you've got a number of uh, pretty big uh, independent groups like uh, MVision, um, or, and then you've got the, the groups that are inside of the investment banks as well. Got it. And these, these placement agents, um, are there other names for them or is that typically placement agents is the, that's typically, that's typically, and they, they're usually focused on private equity or they also do hedge funds from time to time or they mostly do private equity. Yeah. And the reason is, uh, the hedge funds, they, it's it's almost entirely private equity. There, mm -hmm. there may be some exceptions here and there, and, yeah. and I've, I actually have heard of that. But placement for hedge funds really didn't work out economically. And so a lot of the shops that started trying to do that ended up shutting that function. The reason is uh, hedge funds are more liquid, and so it's easier to get money in, but a lot of that money leaves. Right. And so it's harder to calculate the economics for that. Uh, interesting. Meanwhile, uh, the placement for private equity, it's quite simple. It's usually... Uh, one to two percent on capital raised, right. and it gets paid out over a couple of years, and so it, it's very clear. Um, it's also a very different sort of a sell cycle. So inside of Cap Intro at a bank, Cap Intro doesn't uh, doesn't sort of charge anything for the capital raising they do. Right. It's a value added service that the bank provides to its hedge funds clients to entice them to choose that bank as their prime broker. And uh, consequently, it's very hard to kind of figure out what that cap intro person's comp personal compensation is because... Or what their value add is even. It's just because they're basically just making the hedge fund, the prime brokerage more sticky, right? It's a sticky exactly. service. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Meanwhile, the placement agents, it's very clear who brought in the client, how much that client is worth, how much they paid the placement agent, and how much money that placement agent raised for that uh, particular client. Also, similarly, so it's also um, whereas the, the cap intro person is introducing lots and lots of GPs to lots and lots of LPs and being an inch deep and a mile wide in, uh, in uh, the placement agents for private equity, they actually have to know their product incredibly deeply. They're basically being an outsourced IR person for that private equity shop. Right. The only difference is that uh, placement agent has multiple funds going at the same time. So they tend to have much larger teams. They have multi-geographical teams and much wider coverage. And are there any, um, are there any specific, product. are there any specific placement agents that are like the, you know, top that are considered the top and that do really well. And that are the economics tough for that business? I, I know they can make, a, obviously if they, if they're very successful and they're, they're getting one or 2% of, of the capital they help raise, it, it could be, fairly lucrative, but are there, are there any kind of what you, uh, similar bulge bracket type placement agents, or is it kind of more a fragmented market? So it actually does have tiering. So mm -hmm. you do have some of the investment banks, which have this practice uh, built out. Okay. And so UBS, for instance, uh, has a very solid uh, practice mm -hmm. for uh, placement. Uh, a, and uh, Credit Suisse has a very well-established uh, placement business. Got it. Merrill Lynch used to have a very good practice, but that's uh, spun off and uh, was called Mercury. Um, and uh, there's also uh, other um, independent. Okay, just curious. Okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and so then, sorry, continue. You were you were talking about specifically the your your the difference between the two, but go ahead. 
Oh, no, it, it's just that it makes a big difference uh, in terms of quality, right? I mean, uh, Credit Suisse and uh, UBS, they don't just take anybody on as a client. Right. They're famous for telling everyone that they've never failed in a capital raise. And so they vet the funds that they take on very, very thoroughly. And they take on only a small number of mandates. And then actually it starts to uh, go, uh, it starts to break down into tiers thereafter. And you can get even to very small boutique placement agents, but the quality tends to vary quite dramatically. And this is one where there is potentially a career track for someone who's interested uh, coming out of uh, undergrad or even out of MBA, because uh, those sort of shops do hire uh, in the old investment banking uh, way. And so, so basically, and what skills, analyst, your associate and so on. what skills matter? I could guess, but why don't you just tell me what skills are, are important for actually get first getting the job and then actually progressing mm. and getting promoted. So the most important skills are still uh, being uh, quantitative, but also having a, a strong sales edge, just like with, uh, I think, a lot of IBD. There's still financial modeling. They're still having to um, compose the information for the fund and put together the pitch deck and try to make that compelling. And I'd say versus IBD is perhaps more skewed towards sales and away from uh, the quantitative side, uh, but both elements are still required. And I, I think it can be attractive to someone who really would be more interested in selling a product, either inside of a placement group or eventually uh, going to a fund and really being more the tip of the spear for sales, as opposed to um, being a deal person and, and crunching. Great. That's great. So why don't we take it in the direction of, you know, that's mm -hmm. some good career stuff. Why don't we take it in the direction of actually giving some advice on actually the actual fundraising process since you've been in cap, you know, cap raising on the prime brokerage side, right? And then you've been inside, you said four different head, four different uh, funds yourself, but they were all private equity funds, correct? Uh, yeah. Correct, except yeah. one of them also had a hedge fund attached. So, okay. um, but yes, primarily being on the private equity fund. So it'd be great just to uh, hear, I, yeah, your your guidance there. Sure. So uh, there's a number of things. So first, uh, it's really important to be able to uh, understand LP psychology, mm -hmm. and then to be able to uh, spend your time appropriately because there's a there's a massive ocean of LPs out there and you can't spend time with all of them. You really have to find the ones that are a good fit for your fund. And so it's important to understand how the LPs think. Um, broadly speaking, most of the LPs want consistency and okay returns. It's very uh, rare where you see an LP put their hand up and say, we're actually trying to get outsized shoot for the moon returns and we're willing to take bets on newer, younger funds. So there's several kinds of buckets that I think of the LP universe. You've got the uh, pension ins and insurance, which I, I put as one bucket, where they're very large, slow moving. They need to write large checks, which mm -hmm. means that since they can only be a certain percentage of a fund, and it's usually 10% of that fund, it means they're gravitating towards larger funds. Right. Uh, you have uh, endowments and foundations, which are smaller. Uh, they're also looking for some of those same qualities of consistency. Um, but the endowments and foundations tend to be managing uh, smaller pools of capital, so they can talk to smaller funds. And then you have uh, fund of funds, which um, are, uh, you know, all, all very uh, unique. So uh, it's hard to kind of uh, bucket them because each one has their own sort of mandate. So and fund of funds are typically used by either uh, very large uh, LPs or very small LPs. And basically, so a fund of funds basically. Uh, what they do is they invest as an LP into a, a fund, but they get their money from some of the other LPs. And where it's used is to kind of try to um, bridge the gap. Maybe it's a geographic gap. Maybe it's a deep knowledge gap. So a fund right. of funds will uh, go to the big pensions or insurance companies and say, you've got way too much money to manage. Let us help you break it down into smaller chunks. We're an expert in Eastern Europe, we're an expert in Africa, we're an expert in Asia, or maybe we're an expert in healthcare. And you don't know how to address that particular area of uh, the world and figure out who the best GPs are, but we can, and so we'll help you do that. Or they go to family offices and they say, you're too small to have your own independent program. Right. Give us the money as a fund of funds, and we'll help you find the best-in-class uh, PE funds and manage that for you. And so they, they charge a layer of fees, usually 1 in 10, 1% uh, and 10%. 
mm-hmm. of uh, management fee and carry. Yep. And uh, that extra layer of fees uh, needs to be justified. And the fund of funds universe has been shrinking. Yeah, I was about to ask you, what, what is, is that coming under a lot more pressure, that, that space um, in the last... You know, oh, yeah, fund? absolutely. Yeah. That, that's been really challenging. So fund of funds have had to evolve. A lot of them have moved more towards direct investing side. Mm-hmm. So good examples of this, I think, are, are Partners Group, which is a massive publicly traded um, platform for private equity. It started off as a fund of funds shop, mm-hmm. but now that uh, there's so much pressure on fund of funds, they've really moved more to doing direct. And uh, fund of funds is a way to get access. Uh, and then you see all kinds of different changes in the fund of funds universe. Um, and then you have family offices as sort of the last bucket of uh, LPs that I would mention. And family offices are all completely different. If you've met one family office, you've met one family office. They're <laughs> completely different from each other. You have uh, large family offices that have very well established programs and and, are, and uh, are investing across all the asset classes. You have other family offices where all they do is alternatives. You have other family offices who yeah, it's all over the map. and want to invest directly. Um, and, and, and family offices, um, they'd like to build themselves as a different kind of more sticky capital, but a lot of GPs actually find that uh, because of the variance and inconsistency, a lot of family offices can be more trouble than they're worth. Uh, that being said, if you're raising a smaller fund or a venture fund, you're going to spend time with family offices only because the other LPs are too big to really have you on their radar. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, the it's it's probably just too, there's too many idiosyncrasies in family offices to, to kind of even group them into one bucket. It's just, they're all so different. But um, like you said, I think what would be interesting to hear now is, is, a little bit more about your actual experience since you've been across four different funds in this in this specific role kind of what your takeaways are what's your kind of best lessons or best practices that other capital raising or internal ir teams you feel like should follow uh, absolutely so best practices uh, number one before you take a job really vet the company or the, the fund that you're going to be joining because ultimately you're going to be going out and selling that product and there's dramatic uh, differences between all the, uh, the funds. And so you really need to think from the LP perspective, is this going to be an attractive product? Are the returns high enough? Have they been consistent? Has the team been together consist- uh, for a long period of time? Has uh, that strategy uh, that they're currently deploying, is that the same strategy that they've used or has there been strategy drift? Um, do they have a unique edge and which enables them to generate returns or do things differently than other funds. When you're when you're interviewing, really when, but when you're interviewing, it's, it's really hard to do, right? I mean, I think when you're interviewing, at least when I was interviewing, at least uh, the junior mm-hmm. level, it's kind of hard when you're trying to just get in the seat. Oftentimes, right? Do you feel like I guess for maybe for IR specific positions, maybe if, if you're have a great resume, a great background, and people are trying to bring you into the fund for that reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can, you can push back a little bit and dig, but what, what's been your experience in terms of being able to actually execute on, on that, on that research? When I've done good research and chosen the fund well, which is things I've, which I used to do early in my career, mm-hmm. that's when things went well because yeah. I, I made a, a confident decision that I wanted to join that particular fund based on these attributes. Later, when I uh, was a little bit more lazy or felt that I couldn't push back, that's when things went poorly because you might end up getting the offer and then you're stuck raising for a product which is problematic. And that's Mm. where I went wrong. And so interestingly enough, in my career, I actually was able or felt more confident pushing back early than later. Why was that? Why was that? I'm sorry? It seems counterintuitive. Why why were you more confident earlier in your career for that specific? Was it just the situation you were in? No, I think that uh, early on uh, I did things um, in the right way, which is to really push and dig and make sure that before you choose a fund, that you choose the best-in-class product. Right. And I think later on, um, you know, for there was a you know I wanted to join a fund which had uh, more of a social impact, and I ended up uh, letting some of that discipline slide. And saying, you know, you've got the right mission, but there's some other things that are kind of broken. Right. And I joined anyway. And that actually turned out to be problematic. So you need to really stick to the guns, whether you're junior, mid-level, or even senior. 
before you, you need to dig, really dig in. And it's the same things that the placement agents do. You have to think, because eventually you're going to have to raise this product. I'd imagine one of the worst things that a junior person can do is to get into a fund that's going to be very difficult to raise and then not have success as raising and have a much harder time of it. And I have to say, it's a lot more fun to be at a fund, which is doing something unique, which has a real edge and the LPs want to deploy money into rather than being at a mediocre fund, which LPs don't want to invest in. And the LP psychology is actually very straightforward. They want consistency. They don't want to get fired, so they want to buy IBM. They need consistency of returns. Mm -hmm. They would rather have a fund which is returning 15% every single year than a fund that is you know, sometimes doing 25% or more and sometimes returning 10%. That drives LPs crazy. Consistency of returns is important. Consistency of team, that they've been there, that that strategy has remained fairly consistent. Right. And uh, that uh, they can keep counting on this particular vehicle to keep delivering for them year after year and making them look good as deployers of capital. They also are looking for the best in class. So if you're sitting there as an LP, you don't want to be in a okay uh, fund within a given type. You know, you want the number one uh, healthcare fund. You want the number one TMT fund you can get. You want your number one middle market buyouts. You want your number one Latin America fund. And so if you're someone who's interviewing to go join one of these funds, you'd rather pick a fund that is uh, best in class. And, and that makes sense. And there's, and there's reputation that people hear about certain deals that it went really well, but how good is that data? Like, are people actually able to get, you know, I did a little bit of this work with, with the fund I, I worked at as well. I had a little bit uh, helping them in terms of the fundraising side, but it was mm. you know, minor. And I know there was just, you know, there's, there's massaging of the numbers here and there, but it's, I guess the question is, on, when you're sitting on the other side, it's very hard, I feel like, to know and to get get that really good data so you, you feel confident. I guess there's just, uh, there's I guess that's, that's what your whole job is to figure out, right? It's, it's, or at least if you're a fund, in yeah. a fund of funds. So how, how good is that? I assume it's getting better with the amount of data. Available. There's a lot of uh, people playing with data, and that mm -hmm. is a problem. It is diff If you're a student on campus, you can use Prequin, and you can get some information from that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the colleges actually have a subscription, which you don't necessarily get access to cheaply once you're out. Um, you can check information on LPs. LPs typically are um, whispering amongst each other. And if you have friends who've joined on the LP side, they can kind of point you to who the better funds are. And I think that uh, they can also point you to who are the real up-and-comers. If you're a junior person trying to come in and get a job, I think that um, you really should be asking these tough questions. One, because you want to find a GP which is going to take you seriously and is going to appreciate that you have pushback. Otherwise, you're just going to be a voice box rather than someone who's a partner at the table. The person applying for these specific roles, they, they will have, they are probably in the seat of a cap intro, right? Within a, within prime brokerage at, at a bank. Is that who you're talking about? Like somebody a couple of years out where they're now trying to figure out what their next step is and they say, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking of going in-house at XYZ fund, you're saying, well, don't just jump first, verify a lot um, before before you jump. Yeah, I think yeah. whether you're a first-time applicant trying to come in to a fund mm -hmm. or whether you're coming in from a more mid-level kind of a role, I think you want to be asking these tough questions. I think, you know, even if you're a junior, you should be able to look the GP in the eye and say, what makes you have a unique edge and how is that consistent and repeatable? And what should, should they be able to? What should they be listening to? And what should they be listening to? And or any red flags, besides besides strategy drift, like you mentioned, but specifically anything else about the, you know, have they yeah, if they if they've been together, let's say it's let's say you're not the top candidate and you're you're a decent candidate and you can't be too picky or choosy, you have a let's say a few offers and what's what's some red flags that I could look out for or. Because I know I, I made this mistake early in my mm. career. I jumped to a fund and then it blew up, you know, a year later mm. and I was fired six months later. So I clearly didn't do enough research. <laughs> but, you know, if I had pushed back, I feel like I don't know if I would have even known what to ask or even been been smart enough to realize the trouble there because I feel like everyone would have just hit it. Um, but anyways, how how would you go about doing that? Actually, you bring up a very interesting point, which is um, a lot of 
GPs are lying about how easy their fundraising is, going, is coming along. Mm -hmm. So everyone's always about to close. They're about to hit this massively <laughs> oversubscribed first close. And, oh, right. man, we, we did this great first close, and we're, we're barreling down towards the finish. A lot of GPs are exaggerating, and fundraising is not easy. So um, everyone's sort of uh, trying to puff themselves up and be... Uh, you know, seem bigger than they are. Of course, so that's that's a tough one. So the mistake you made is actually very understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, it's again, it's also information that's very difficult to to get a handle on. Um, you know, but you're right. The things that you want to uh, vet for are the team having been together for a while, have a lot of turnover. That's a warning sign. Yep. Uh, two, if there's been strategy drift, it's hard to kind of uh, you know prove that, but that that's important. Uh, you want to talk to really the LPs because they'll give you more of an honest answer about uh, how a GP is, uh, is doing. But if you're talking to a fund and they're saying uh, that their fundraising is going very well, you want to ask them, when's that first closing? Um, have you closed at least 50% of your target? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when are you doing the final close? How much more time do you have, uh, et cetera? How well is, uh, are things progressing? And from your earlier LPs, what percentage of them are coming into this fund? And you just try to figure out, you know, whether there's really capital uh, flowing into this platform. You want to make sure that the team is stuck together through uh, through the years. You want to make sure the strategy has been uh, consistent. Right. And you want to also ask them about uh, the size of the fund and whether it's sort of appropriately sized to what they're trying to do. And uh, I think most importantly, you want to ask the LPs because the GPs you have to assume are going to give you a spin. The LPs, on the other hand, are a wonderful source of information, and they share uh, information amongst the, each other. And are they pretty easy um, to I get in touch one. with, the people who work at the LPs? Like, a, you just start, like, you know, trying to network with them, or is it obviously people, if, if you have friends or alumni that, that work there, it's easier. But is it something where they're usually pretty open to, to talking about that type of stuff or, or not? Friends and alumni is probably the easiest way. Right. So before I joined uh, my first private equity firm, uh, I was able to ask a lot of tough questions, and they had already had a couple of very well-known LPs, and I was able to find someone there that was able to uh, triangulate. And the fact that uh, she told me that this is uh, one of the best LPs that they have gave me a lot of confidence. And I think if I had done that same sort of due diligence on the social impact fund, um, I think the LPs would have given me a very different story. They would have told me that it's very difficult for that uh, platform to raise because of strategy drift and inability to hold a team together. Interesting. I also wanted to kind of drop, uh, you know, maybe about uh, 10 or so best practices for upcoming funds, uh, up and coming funds, which um, I'd love to hear. Very helpful. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Yes. Yeah, so the number one thing is pre screen and qualify your leads. 90% of the challenge is figuring out who you should actually be spending your time on and talk to. So you have to be able to vet them for whether or not they have money and whether they have money for your specific strategy and what their program is. So, for instance, if you're talking to uh, an LP and they're getting super excited and asking a lot of questions and they want to see you again, and you ask them, hey, have you actually put money into TMT before? Have you actually put money into media before? Have you invested in Africa before? And their answer is no. Chances are you're not going to be the first. And so it's about figuring that out. Um, two is um, to try to use as many referrals as possible. So cold calling very rarely works in this business. Um, it's challenging to get referrals, but that's where it needs to come from. That's why when you look at new funds, the first money in is always the previous business associates and friends of the GP team. So, you know, you have the founder who goes off and sets up his new team. It's his, he's the guy who's got to bring in the money. He's got to bring in those relationships. Right. People go with trust. And then those LPs need to refer you to other LPs. You can meet people in conferences. You can do cold outreach. I've done plenty of that, but the ones that always work well is when there's a referral. It's always better. Uh, I'd say number three is soft marketing, and that's something that uh, gets overlooked by a lot of funds. But the best time to be raising is when you're not officially raising, where you can have um, meetings with LPs and have a more kind of gentlemanly, relaxed conversation. And you want to always have that program running. Right. Um, it's not a, hey, we're closing in a couple months and blah, 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 trying to increase that pressure it's more relaxed and then it's there's absolutely. the pressures off yeah yeah you can do, develop a relationship better absolutely come yeah. uh, spend some time together Let, let's talk about our strategy we'll let you know when we're raising because once you actually start raising the stopwatch starts ticking 
you, you know, actually most of the um, fund in corporate, the fund docs will give you 12 months from the time when you do your first closing to do your final closing. Hmm. LPs have zero incentive to come in early into a fund. They want you to start doing deals so they can see how those, uh, how well you, your fund is performing right. before they actually pull the trigger. So they're always trying to delay it all the way out to the end. However, if you spend the soft marketing period between fundraisers to build up an, a list of LPs that are actually excited, what you may end up being able to do is to come is to do soft circling and to say, hey, look, we haven't launched fundraising yet, but we're going to soon. And by the way, our fund's already more than 75% or 50% subscribed. So you really need to come into the first close if you're planning on, on being in this fund. And that only works if you've spent time with them over the months or years between your funds. Mm-hmm. So definitely makes a lot soft of sense. market. Okay, that's great. And, and to, that, to that same end, um, you want to have 50% of your target capital closed on at the first close. It looks very weak. And, and I see a lot of fund managers make this mistake when they come out and they say, okay, we're going to do a first close just to lock down a little bit of capital, maybe 15, 20% because we have a certain sponsor or an LP that wants to give us some money. So we're just going to do a first close and lock it down. That can be a terrible idea. You need to do a first close of 50% of the capital because it sends a very strong signal to the market and it creates a scarcity value for the uh, remaining amount of uh, potential uh, capacity that you have in your fund. Interesting. Um, so what if what if it's just you can't get to 50%? You, I guess you just, that means you, you, you drop your, your, your top line number, but does, does that send a bad signal as well? Well, you don't want to ever be announcing before you're actually ready and Got have it. your soft closes done. So, yeah. you know, the size of your fund. I always uh, recommend to GPs underestimate and under announce the size of your fund. You look much better if you tell people you're going to go raise a hundred million or dollars uh, and you end up saying, oh my gosh, too much demand. We had to push it up to 150 right. or I was going to raise 300, but gosh darn it, the LPs pushed me and we took in a billion. You don't right. want to be the guy who says, hey, I'm going to go raise a billion dollars. And then you come back to the market and you say, oh, well, we we're only able to close on 300. Right, and, makes sense. and you don't want to quote a large number for two reasons. One is, uh, well, three reasons. Um, one is the LPs don't feel there's scarcity value. So they can delay writing you a check because there's still capacity. Right. Two, you know, you might not hit your target or it might not be as fast for you hitting the target. And so you look weak. And, and three, um, you know, it, it actually in many cases look like, it might look like you have too much of an ego or you have uh, too much of... Um, you know, you're, you're, looks like you're biting off more than you can chew. It's better to come out of the gates saying, hey, we just want to focus on returns, not on the size of AUM. We're going to come out with a reasonable size. We already have a pipeline which accounts for more than two times this uh, fund capacity that we're raising. And then if uh, the LP demand is so high, sure, you can always push the target up. Makes sense. And always give a range. So, you know, we're raising between one to 200 million. So that way, if you close on 125, you're well within your range. Right. Makes sense. Totally. So yeah. another thing that I, that's important, and this I, I seldom see this done, is to keep top of mind using short, frequent contacts and messages. So it's kind of like if you're trying to get uh, a girl to date you. You don't want to write her a long-winded email or text message, which goes on for pages and pages, and send that out to her every six weeks. That she'd think you're a psycho. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to send short little SMSs to her. Oh, you're so sweet. I'm thinking of you. Oh, I sent a little rose by you, your office. You know, oh, hey, you know that song that uh, you liked? Hey, I, I got you a mix. I, I got you a DVD of that, or a CD of that, and I sent it to you, or uh, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's sort of the analogy, right? Short, short frequent sweet messages. Yeah, yep. okay. And, um, you know, what I see GPs doing is, they only talk to the LPs when it's fundraising time or when they're thinking of fundraising. Or maybe every six months or every quarter, they'll right. send out a gigantic long quarterly email where they send out a Christmas uh, email, which is like three pages or 10 pages long where they talk about every deal they did. And no LP sits down and reads that except some crazy LP. <laughs> like you want to just be like, hey, quick message. Because it's you know, you know every like four to six weeks, there's a quick little message saying, "Hey, we had an exit with one of our portfolios. Hey, we just did this new deal. Oh, um, right. you know, this little highlights along the way. About, you that know, just sense. you know had a great re- result. You know, yeah, just you know short, frequent. Um, you know, and 
uh, you know, now that I'm on the deployer side, there's very few funds that do that. But the ones that do, they really carve out us a bit of mind share, um, of, especially within their space. And so you're um, saying do that even, you know, once the funds close, just because you're going to potentially be raising again in a few years or start at the soft raise again for fund two. Sure. So, yeah. It's well, important. especially if it's yeah. closed. Yeah. The time between fundraises is the most important marketing time. That's that soft marketing. Yeah. And you want to keep on top of mind. That way in 24, 36, 48 months when the next fundraise is happening, um, you've spent a lot of time cultivating that relationship. Mm-hmm. It also helps because uh, then when you actually are going on roadshows um, to uh, socialize the fund with LPs, you're top of mind and it makes it much easier to reach out to them. It's not as much of an ask to say, hey, sit down and spend time with me. If you've been sending them messages every four to six weeks, it just so happens that you're in New York or in San Francisco on a, on a road show or on a trip and right. you'd like to sit down for and discuss. That makes a lot of sense. It's that familiarity. Yep, yeah, for sure. Um, materials, you know, I, I, I always um, like to say, you know, kind of stage it. You want a, a simple, short, crisp teaser and a short deck, you know, no more than 10 slides. And then you want a long deck. And I actually have seen, uh, and so that's, you know, your 30 to 50 uh, slides. And then you have an extremely long deck, which I've seen a um, uh, few GPs now using in, instead of a long private placement memorandum. So that might be going a little bit more too much into, into tradecraft here. But um, my thinking is always when you're building up the relationship, you want to keep things short and sweet. Yeah, but you still want a, lo- a number of large, longer deliverables that you can give people if they really want to dig in. So, I, so again, teaser and a short deck, your two most important weapons, and then a long deck um, for uh, when it's appropriate. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, tracking and follow up super important. Um, if you aren't tracking and following up and treating it like a sales process, you're already doing very poorly, and that means having a CRM. So I, I know some. Uh, GPs are using uh, PipeDrive. Uh, some are using uh, a number of solutions which are really more tailored to the PE industry. Mm-hmm. And I actually like Google Sheets. And the reason I like uh, Google Sheets is I can have lots and lots of copies so I can slice it in many ways. Um, I have one for each city. And that way, if I'm going to, say, New York or San Francisco, I can just use a, a simple tool which uh, plugs into Chrome to do mail merges. Mm-hmm. And I can just email everyone and say, hey, I happen to be in town in about three weeks. And uh, would love to be able to sit down and uh, discuss. And I can uh, do that Much easier. very easily inside yeah. of uh, Google Sheets. Yeah, you can do the mail merges really easily and everything. Yeah, it's super, super efficient. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And I can have, have a virtual assistant or a secretary um, input stuff into that Google Sheets because it's just Excel. Whereas in the past where I've tried to use more complex CRMs like Salesforce, uh, Sales IQ, um, or what have you, it, I can't have support staff do a lot of the ha- that heavy lifting for me. And it, it's quite cumbersome if I want to then slice and dice it and try to send out a, 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 a mass message when I'm coming to town. Mm-hmm. So it's just super practical to be able to, to do a Google Sheets thing. Uh, sure. Pipe drives is nice because you actually can do a sales funnel. And you need to treat uh, a lot of um, capital raising like a sales funnel. You've got to have an understanding of uh, where an LP uh, is like are they sort of a lower tier LP for you with lower likelihood? Do you have uh, a higher expected value with a better chance of closing, or are they really on your short list where you want to stay uh, pretty tight and close with them? Got it. And in terms of how you get that initial database together of contacts and targets, is there is there like well known lists? And I, I know there's places where you can. I mean, we we even sell a family office database, but I know is there like one specific, I guess it depends on the fund, but is there one specific yeah. area you'd recommend looking? Well, uh, Prequin is pretty good for private equity. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is that then it becomes a cold emailing game. And I'm not a huge believer in that. Mm-hmm. So I'm really much more of a believer of introductions. Okay. Now, have I um, used Prequin? Sure. But the best is when you have uh, LPs warm intro. that have done business with you in the past and they recommend you onto the next set of LPs and they recommend you onto the next set of LPs. Great. And that's actually where sort of placement agents come into the picture. Because to a great extent, you're not only hiring a placement agent to advise you on fundraising strategy and uh, to uh, outsource a lot of that heavy lifting, but you're actually hiring a placement agent because they're continuously in the marketplace dialoguing with LPs. And so they're providing access. 
and an understanding of which LPs are currently deploying for your type of strategy. And do funds uh, typically for, just hand it all off to the placement agent? Or are they trying to do this in in concert with them? Like how how much is it outsourced? It varies, but is it like something? It really varies on okay. whether or not on, on the size of the fund. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they have in-house uh, investor relations people. Right. There are GPs that are just handing everything off uh, to a placement agent. And then the partners themselves are getting involved to provide information. But the placement agent is basically running the entire process the way an investment bank typically would on a deal. Mm-hmm. And there's other cases where it really is a lot more input from uh, in-house. And they're kind of holding the placement agent to account. And they're really using the placement agent for... Uh, access to LPs and for figuring out which LPs are qualified. Got it. Got it. And, Makes sense. Uh, so, the last thing I would say is, you know, there's sort of uh, no substitute to getting out on the road and meeting people face to face. So I know uh, a number of, uh, of funds where they make it uh, a point every quarter to hit the road and do a around the world uh, tour. And that tends to be very effective because, uh, you know, you can only do so much over uh, a video chat or a phone call. It really helps to actually see people face to face. And that particularly is the case if you're going to non-core locations to raise capital. Yeah, no, for sure. Real, another question I had specifically on just fund size and track record and how important that is. And um, specifically for the smaller funds, the, the mm. sub say $200 million funds and, you know, maybe they don't have the budget to go travel all around the world <laughs> um, or, or maybe they just, um, I guess, where would they start? I mean, just trying to figure out, okay, for their specific strategy, they need to focus on these 20 LPs and just really try to develop a relationship any way they can. Well, 20 is far too small. Uh, yeah. It's still a numbers game. So okay. you need to be uh, up North of a hundred if you're going to have a successful raise. And even that is a hundred of, which are pre-qualified and screened right. where you're in, uh, and tiered by you, or hopefully they've been introduced by a warm contact. Got it. And so, you know, and actually I think travel is still pretty important. Um, you, you can find some efficiencies by going to conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Super Return is one uh, conference organizer, which uh, puts on uh, events, which bring a lot of the LPs together. So you can have a lot of efficient meetings. Great. Um, but, you know, really, a lot of the LPs are concentrated in a handful of cities. It's uh, New York, it's London, it's uh, Zurich and Geneva, it's uh, San Francisco to a lesser extent. Uh, and, some great and, cities. And it kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> one to go. You know, if you want big sovereigns, you, you know, there's Singapore and um, Dubai. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's sort of, travel's not that bad. You don't have to fly first or even business. You can fly coach, you mm-hmm. can take mid-range hotels, but you've got to get out there so that people can meet you. And uh, there's sort of no substitute for getting uh, on the road. And conferences are well worth it because it brings together a lot of LPs and you can have very efficiently one-hour-long meetings all day long and uh, get on the radar of a lot of different deployers of capital. Do you feel like those those conferences tend to be more about just kind of initial, the LPs that are doing that, are they just kind of feeling things out are they actively looking to put money to work or what's been your experience at those is it did they actually yield actual uh, you know any sort of funding or are they typically more just they do okay it it depends though i mean the key for you know is to again try to do the pre-qualification ideally before you sit down with that lp you've already spoken with them a few times and then it's a then it's much more productive when you're actually there face to face and Yep. Okay. And I think it depends which conference. So Super Return, I think, has a, a number of pretty high quality conferences. I, I think there's a number of others mm-hmm. uh, which are which are decent as well. Um, and, but you know, the key is is it's not enough to have a one hour meeting. The key is to have a one hour meeting that's been pre qualified that that LP can invest in your strategy and has money to deploy. So how are you actually and, supposed to run a fund and fundraise at the same time? It sounds like it's if mm-hmm. you're a small fund, how do you? I know you have to make the time because it's the lifeblood of the fund, right? But I guess, how do you balance that if, if you're just getting pulled in so many different directions? Is it something where you try to just make it as efficient po- as possible with the this software comes into play? I mean, you're using Google Sheets. It's not some sort of fancy software. So what what would you recommend for somebody who's, you know trying to look at deals? They're raising, you know, maybe they're trying to raise their first fund. Um, I mean, 
someone who's raising their first fund, they probably already have success. Like you said, they're coming from a, a previous fund and they already have that initial kind of anchor LP. But what about what about some other funds that you know? What what would you what would you suggest to them? Uh, well, I think it's really tough if you're a small fund, mm-hmm. and because uh, it's difficult to balance running a fund with doing fundraising, and you see this especially within venture capital because those by design tend to be running smaller funds, right? And the GPs have to get the, uh, involved directly, and uh, for, because these are smaller funds, they tend to be unable to attract a, a placement agent, mm-hmm. so. Uh, you know, it's 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 a challenge. That's why people do hire uh, if they're large enough placement agents. That's why they do consider, in some cases, hiring uh, in-house IR so the deal team can kind of free their hands to do this. Otherwise, if you are uh, a principal and you are uh, uh, running the fund and you you still have to do fundraising, you need to look to your immediate network because again, the chances of you finding somebody new who's never done business with you to now back you on a fund is very low. So, you know, my advice would be if someone is thinking of launching their own fund, be it a hedge fund or a private equity fund, you want to make sure you have a fair deal of money from people who have who have done business with you in the past that are going to support you on this new venture. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Anything else you want to share with the listeners before we call the pod? Um, I think that those are um, the main ones. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, just to reemphasize a few of the points is just, you know, pre-screening. And qualifying your contacts, super important. Trying to get a good read on uh, how those meetings went and kill those uh, ones that uh, you think have a low expected value and really focus on those few that you think have a better chance of writing a, a ticket is key. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, follow-up is uh, very important. So make sure that you do that. A meeting doesn't mean a thing if they forget about you in a few weeks. So you have to stay top of mind. For sure. A good way to stay top of mind is those uh, short, frequent messages. And, um, you know, between funds, make sure you're fundraising. Make and sure flying. Soft marketing between yeah. funds. So you can have those, so you can have your uh, your leads pre-qualified when it comes time to fundraise and you can just kind of, you know, press the trigger and go. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you for taking the time. Thanks again for sharing so much information and being so forthcoming with, with the listeners. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.